to the Moose Room, everybody. We are here today with a special guest. We have Dr. Sandra Godden today. She is a professor at the College of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Minnesota. We're talking about selective dry cow therapy. It's definitely been something that's in the news. It's something that's been on everyone's mind as we try to look for different ways to use antibiotics judiciously. So we're really excited to have her on. She's been doing research on this, has done research on a lot of different stuff. Uh, too much to list everything here, but we're super excited to have her on to talk about this topic and, and the new research that was just done. Uh, papers came out this year, 2020. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Joe. Happy to be here. Very excited to share this information with you guys. Emily and Brad are also here. We, we Yeah, uh, hi. <laughs> By the we way. Have, we have the OG3 here together with Sandra. So we have two questions. We ask every guest. We have to do those first. That's just how it works. The first one, we always start opposite order of your of your knowledge base. So we need to know your favorite beef cow breed. Oh, my. I guess that would, my favorite beef cow breed would have to be a Hereford because they, at least in practice, were the ones that were least likely to try to kill me. Oh, yes. That's good reasoning. That is two for Hereford now. Two uh. for Hereford. Bradley is the Hereford man. Uh, a lim limousine would be at the, the, the other end of the list of most. <laughs> All right. Yeah, maybe we should start asking everybody that question, their least favorite breed. Yeah. But, all right, Hereford. That is a good answer, according to Bradley. That puts <laughs> Black Angus at three, Hereford at two, Kianina at one, Brahmin at one, Stabilizer at one, and Black Baldy at one. <laughs> all right. So, well, the other question, if you you can probably guess, is what is your favorite dairy breed? Which is, you know, somewhat times a little more controversial, but there is a right answer, just as we've established. Yeah, I'm sorry, but I have to go with Holstein. I grew up with them, and even though Jerseys, they're they're a close second. They're really cute. They're really fun. I still have to go with the good old Holstein. That is disappointing, but we will accept it. Jersey was the correct answer, <laughs> but Holstein, Holstein is also okay. I guess we've got. Jersey at three, Holstein at three, Dutch Belted at two, Normandy at one, Brown Swiss at one, and Montbelliard at one. So that's where we stand. Jersey Holstein back tied up, unfortunately. Brad and I are I like disappointed. It. <laughs> it's a, well, and I feel like Dutch Belted kind of like floats in with, with they're Holstein. they're kind of a dual purpose, you know. Yeah. Know. Well, and they're right, like black and white, classic, timeless. Uh -huh. right, the Holstein is timeless. Yeah, we're looking for class. That's right. Yes. So I, me and Sandra, I, we got to figure it out. You guys could have said Pinsgauer, but then you'd have to add another category to your list. No, I, <laughs> I will take Holstein over that. That's, like I said, slightly disappointing. But yes, I understand <laughs> the choice. Definitely understand the choice. All right, let's get into what we're actually here to talk about today. The, the two very important questions are answered. We're here to talk about selective dry cow therapy. And really the big thing that we need to throw out there right away is that we have currently the, the common practices blanket dry cow therapy where every animal in a non-organic uh, herd is treated with antibiotics at dry off and the teat sealant, hopefully. That's where we are currently. Now, I think it's, I think it's important to know why we got there. So Sandra, can you kind of explain why that was how we were doing things or how we have been doing things? Sure, Joe. I mean, there's good justification historically for the practice of blanket dry cow therapy. 
and it goes back several decades. Well, yeah, decades ago, we, North America at least, had a high, relatively high prevalence of Staph aureus and Strep Ag in our herds. These are contagious pathogens that are difficult to control and can be easily transmitted uh, from cow to cow, usually at the time of milking. And treating every quarter of every cow, like a dry cow therapy at dry off, was one of our key strategies to get those contagious pathogens under control. Also, historically, we had less control of other mastitis pathogens. So when it came time to dry cows off, there was a relatively high prevalence of infection in the herd. And so given that, it just made sense not to try to think too hard about it. We're just gonna treat every quarter of every cow. And, and it played a big role in getting those contagious pathogens under control. That was historically though. However, over the last 15 to 20 years, if you look at cell counts in the North American dairy herd, we have trended down steadily. Producers are doing an awesome job of improving milk quality, reducing mastitis and the impacts of mastitis in the herd. So now when we look at the prevalence of infection in herds at dry off, strep egg is almost eliminated, almost eradicated in North America. Staph aureus, it might be present in herds, but typically at a very low prevalence. And we've got a relatively low prevalence of infection in quarters. Maybe only 15 to 20% of quarters have an infection at dry off. And so it's harder to justify thinking that we need to put an antibiotic in every quarter of every cow. Also, what else has changed is we also have tools now to protect untreated quarters from new infections during the dry period. And that would be the teat sealant that you mentioned. So we've got that tool to, to add to our toolbox, if you will, to help prevent new infections. And also we now have rapid, convenient, inexpensive tests that we could apply at the time of dry off to make decisions as to whether or not a cow is likely to be infected or not to make those treatment decisions. So historically those things were lacking, but now we've got all the tools, the stars are aligned, and I think it's, it's time we, we can do this. So we've kind of moved from a, yeah, it's better safe than sorry type mindset to, we know we can make a well-informed decision. So we're going that route now. Yeah, that's right, Emily. And it's not, selective dry cow therapy is not, for every herd yet. There are still some herds that uh, do have a higher prevalence of Staph aureus, let's say, or a higher prevalence of infection overall. And, and they should probably focus on getting those things under control before they consider something like selective dry cow therapy. But a relatively high proportion of herds in US and Canada now are ready and could easily manage these programs if they wanted to take them on. It's definitely something that's picking up steam. And right now, I would say we have 80% of herds in the U.S. that are still using blanket dry cow therapy and probably only about 10% that are using selective dry cow therapy. And obviously, that doesn't add to 100, so there's 10% that are, are not using dry cow therapy. I, it is going to pick up steam. I think it has to pick up steam, especially with the studies that have come out. We've, we've shown or I didn't do anything. Sandra and, and some of the other people that, that did the research have shown that economically it makes sense, a lot of sense. Uh, but I think it is important to note, like, like Dr. Godwin was saying, is it's not for everyone. And I, and I think that's something that comes up over and over and over again when we look at anything that's out there. There's, not, there's nothing out there really that's, that's for every herd all the time. There's definitely some specific things that need to happen for her to be ready to implement this. And it starts again with, with knowing what's going on with 
infections and mastitis on your farm. Where do we start there, Sandra? Where do we, how do we get to that point where a herd is considering, is this for me or not? How do they make that choice? Sure. Um, yeah, so that's the first important question that every herd has to, or manager or owner has to consider, is this selective dry cat therapy right for me, for my herd? And this is a conversation that we, we hope uh, owners and managers will have with their veterinarian and get the veterinarian's input on, on helping to make that decision. We have some basic ideas about what herds are probably suitable candidates for selective dry cat therapy, and I can go through just a, a quick little short little list here if you like, Joe. We suggest that their annual average bulk tank somatic cell count be less than 250,000 cells per milliliter. The reason being, if they've got a low bulk tank cell count, that probably means they have a lower prevalence of infection at dry off. There's fewer cows infected, there's a greater opportunity to reduce your drug use. Uh, the second point, uh, we recommend that the herd have reasonably good control over contagious pathogens, that being low, very low numbers or low prevalence of Staph aureus and Strep Ag. You know, the occasional cow pops up with a Staph aureus and hopefully we can detect her through somatic cell counts during lactation, maybe clinical flare-ups and, and culture and clinicals, and we can find and deal with those in other ways. But um, we do want good control over the contagious pathogens. The third point, Joe, you already mentioned this, is use of a teeth sealant at dry off. If we don't give an antibiotic at dry off, one, one of the actions of antibiotics at dry off that was so helpful, one was to cure pre-existing subclinical infections, and we've already addressed that. But the other action is it actually prevents new infections during the early part of the dry period while the, while the gland is involuting. Well, if we don't treat that quarter because it's not infected, we're missing that protection at least in the early part of the dry period. So that's where the teeth sealants come in to offer protection throughout the dry period. And our study didn't do this, but other selective dry cat therapy studies have, have attempted to do selective dry cat therapy without benefit of teeth sealants, and they didn't work. You, you need to incorporate a teeth sealant routinely to protect your cows, particularly those cows that weren't treated with antibiotics. Other considerations, we want well-trained personnel, using the correct techniques, you know, aseptic, hygienic techniques to infuse whatever treatment is assigned to the cow in the quarter. And then we need to have the ability to monitor the herd going forward to make sure that it's working for us. And that's, again, where the, the veterinarian can come back in to help monitor. I think to me, and we talk a lot about labor on this podcast and, and employees and staff, and it, it really does all come back to, to that. For, for me, that's the biggest piece, uh, having well-trained staff that are going to buy into this. Bradley talks about it all the time. If, if staff don't buy in, if employees are not, not in on what you're trying to do, it's not going to work no matter, no matter what. Um, and even as something as like activity monitors, we talked about activity monitors during our heat detection episode. And Brad, didn't you say even some of your employees didn't, didn't trust your heat detection on your activity monitors for a while there too. And that, that really was a challenge. So that's right. That's right. It just takes, you know, people have to, the workers have to be able to see results too. And that's the problem. They, you know, they want to see results today. And even with, you know, dry cow treatments, it's 60, at least 60 or 45 to 90 days or more before they see results. And by that time they forgot about what, what we did. Mm -hmm. You need that employee buy-in. I would say, you know, personally, I put that number one. And then uh, along with that, being able to monitor the program to make sure it's working and, and that, that things are going well. 
Uh, and that helps you, like Brad said, it helps employees too. If they can see it's working and they, they can see some benefit from it, it's going to help them buy in even more. I want to just jump into the meat of it, which I feel like this is probably where you were going, Joe, but I've just been very, very excited about this. <laughs> so I really, I really enjoyed looking at the, the papers and the different work uh, that we were sent prior to recording this episode. And so Sandra, something for me that I found really interesting because I, you know, had a general idea of selective dry cow therapy. And in the research that you've been working on, I know that you've used kind of two different parameters to select the dry cows that got the therapy. So I believe you refer to them as culture and then algorithm. And so could you just really briefly kind of explain the differences between the two and, and what parameters you were using within each of those uh, to make those decisions? What was kind of unique about our study as compared to other studies, most other studies used an algorithm-based approach. And what that means is they, they used historical records for the cow to make a decision at dry up as to whether or not she was likely to be infected. And those records include two things, DHI test A cell count data or and or, no, and, excuse me, and clinical mastitis events. So using a combination of cell count history and clinical mastitis events in that current lactation, you can come up with a reasonably good prediction of whether or not she's likely to be infected. It's not 100% accurate, but it's, it's close enough. So for those herds that are on a routine DHI testing program, this is stupid simple. You've already got the cell count data. Hopefully you're recording clinical mastitis events. You just you know run that list. As, you know, the day before dry off or the day of dry off, and you can pick the cows from that that are more likely or less likely to be infected and make that treat no treat decision. And in fact, uh, Minnesota DHI, starting in November, is going to start uh, generating a report. I think it's called the DHI 370 Flex Report or 370 Flex Report that will go out to all herds, eligible herds, and will list. Uh, all cows due to dry off in the next 45 days that they consider to be good potential candidates for no treat, teat sealant only, based on their cell count history. Now the producers are still going to have to look at that, that list and go back and look at their clinical mastitis records and just double check to make sure that she hasn't had two or more flare-ups that lactation. But that algorithm-based approach is really, really simple to use it's, it's really easy. You've already paid for the cell count data. There's no additional cost. You just, just have to look at the list. So that's the algorithm. Really, really simple. The other approach that we evaluated was a culture-based or culture-guided approach because we recognize that not all herds are on a DHI testing program. They won't have that somatic cell count data to look at. So how are they going to make a decision? So at the University of Minnesota and, and elsewhere too, over the years, we've encouraged people to use rapid culture systems to make strategic treatment decisions for clinical mastitis events. So the Minnesota easy culture system, biplate or triplate, um, some farms have adopted it and use it in their on-farm lab. In other situations, the farm might not have a, a on-farm culture lab, but the local vet clinic offers those services and can quickly culture the, the clinical sample, turn it around, you get the answer the next day and you make your treatment decision. And so for clinical mastitis, that's worked out really, really well for people uh, properly used. People can reduce their drug use by 50% treating clinicals or not treating clinicals during lactation because we, we know not every clinical needs to be treated. 
Well, we're basically just taking that idea, that rapid culture system and modifying it, adapting it for use for selective dry cow therapy decisions. So what, what those producers would do, and this will require a little more labor, Joe, back to your employee buy-in thing, and we recognize employees are busy, but this, this one will require a little more labor. A few days before dry-off day, you're gonna to need to go out and collect aseptic quarter samples from all the cows you intend to dry off, plate them on the, the Minnesota forecast plate, that's the rapid culture plate that we've developed for this purpose, incubate them for about well, 36 to 48 hours, uh, interpret them, and the idea is you're going to just sim simply be looking for growth or no growth. So if a quarter has bacterial growth, we don't care what kind it is, you're just gonna treat her with antibiotics. The quarters with no bacterial growth will not get antibiotics. And then all quarters, of course, will get a teeth sealant. So it requires a little more labor each week to collect the samples and do the cultures. But for herds that haven't invested in the DHI testing program, this would be an alternate approach. And in our study, where we compared both the algorithm-guided and the culture-guided selective programs against blanket dry cow therapy, both programs worked. They were equally effective to blanket dry cow therapy, and they worked equally well. They both reduced drug use by an average of 55%, which was really impressive. That's a big number. Yeah. It's yeah. Yeah, and I will say, as we've discussed in some of our past mass studies episodes, all of us here at the Moose Room are proponents of culturing uh, individual cows, especially uh, oh, great. beyond Good. that bulk tank culture. So that's great to hear. And I just remember I read that and I thought, huh, I would have never thought about, you know, having two different methods that way. So I think that that's really interesting. And you know, you hit on a good point as we've talked about labor and employee buy-in and how difficult that can be uh, sometimes with some of these. And that kind of leads into uh, a question that I had, and that is about, you know, strategies for dairies who want to transition to a selective dry cow therapy plan for their herd. And, you know, thinking of it from kind of two different contexts, one being dairies that are currently just doing blanket dry cow therapy. And then, you know, as Joe mentioned, that, that uh, 10% that are not doing any dry cow therapy, but are maybe thinking, hey, this might help get my vault take cell count a little bit lower, and I don't want to spend a ton of money on drugs, and so I only want to treat the ones that really need it. Um, and so when thinking about that, kind of transitioning to this method, you know, do you feel that you would see more dairies using the algorithm method to start or, you know, for those that have maybe never done treatment that they should just go right for the culture? Uh, just kind of curious what your thoughts might be on that. Hmm. That's a really good question, Emily. And the answer is probably it depends. Like it, it, it just it depends on the herd, their resources, like you mentioned, labor, time record-keeping system, um, their enthusiasm for adopting anything, and, and probably the veterinarian needs to be involved. I, I don't think there's a pat answer for that, Emily. I think the veterinarian should get invited in and be involved in going over all of those considerations and figuring out what's, what's going to be the best strategy for this herd, because different herds are going to have different strategies or different approaches or different priorities, you know, saving labor or not. Um, if they want to save labor, then I think starting uh, somatic cell count testing, routine DHI testing would be 
recommended and you could maybe get three months of testing under your belt. And I know in our study, we're, we're actually recommending, you know, a whole lactation's worth of tests, eight tests or more per year to make an individual cow decision. But maybe to get started, if they got three months of testing under their belt and they had good clinical mastitis records historically, maybe that would be enough to get started, you know, three months from now using that, that DriveFlex report. I think a lot of it has, it must, to me, it, it really does come down to the DHIA. You know, it, it, frequency of test is going to make a big difference on a lot of this. So if you're already testing quite a bit and, and, and you, you have that data already, I would advocate for using the algorithm-based uh, method because we, we saw the same reduction. And if you're a smaller herd or you don't test very often, um, then I think there's a lot of value in the culture because... There's, there's a lot of value in the culture because we can, we can still get the same thing accomplished. I, I, I think DHIA is very important. And I think that we, a lot of people probably undervalue what they provide, but I think that it, it's, again, it's, it's not going to fit everybody. So you have to make your decision based on what's best for your herd. I think the, the other thing that I, I really wanted to point out while we're still on the topic is Quarter sampling is the culture method that we used in the study, right? And there is a dramatic difference when you move to composite samples in terms of reduction of antibiotics. It's still valid. It's still definitely valid. There's still a reduction in antibiotic use, uh, but it's not to the same extent as if you were to use a quarter sampling method. That's, that's right, Joe. Um, there have been other studies, one or two other studies that collected a composite milk sample. So they put four quarters, squirted samples from all four quarters into a single vial, mixed the milk together and plated that. And with that, you can decide if the cow is infected, but you don't know which quarter. And because there are fewer quarters that are infected than there are cows, if, if we can make a quarter level diagnosis, then we have a greater opportunity to reduce drug use. So I'm, I'm thinking of one Canadian study that plated or cultured composite milk samples, they reduced drug use, but, but by less than 30%, 28, 27% or something. So it was a reduction, but it probably was not enough to make it cost effective. Whereas with the, the forecast plate developed here at the University of Minnesota, by plating individual quarters, making quarter level decisions, we saw an average of 55% reduction and that more than paid for the program. There was a, a positive net return. And we haven't talked about the economic shift, but that's another consideration. There's, you know, there's the logistics and labor considerations and what's easier to implement, but there's also an economic consideration or, or payback to producers who can successfully adopt these programs. And the, the break-even is a big piece of this. And, that, and that's why one of the main reasons I wanted to bring up the composite sampling is that you do see a reduction in antibiotic use, but uh, the break-even is a lot messier. Uh, it doesn't necessarily pencil out and it's going to depend a lot on your farm uh, and, and how things are going and, and how well you control mastitis already. Just that's the point I wanted to make that there's a, there's a big difference in quarter sampling versus composite sampling when we, when we talk about this. But if you are, uh, if you do have DHI already, the algorithm is, is not any different. So to me that, you know, culture is the gold standard and it, it probably always will be to me, but the fact that algorithm uh, works just as well is actually really really nice and 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 another way to get more out of uh, more out of your DHIA records and, and and save some more money and still be just as effective in controlling mastitis because that's the piece the other piece we haven't really talked about yet is that 
there wasn't any increase in mastitis or in these herds, correct? Correct, yeah, that, that was the most important bottom line. For these programs to work, we have to have no worse um, utter health next lactation than blanket dry cow therapy. Blanket dry cow therapy is kind of our, our reference, our gold standard program. So to adopt selective successfully, we can't be making things worse. We can't be missing cows that really needed to be treated. So the sensitivity of our program, the ability to find and treat cows that do need to be treated, that's our first most important criteria. And, and we were successful, like, like I mentioned earlier. We followed all of these cows into the next lactation. This was, by the way, this is a multi-herd, multi-state study. And in each herd, there were three treatment groups. One was the blanket dry cow therapy control group. One was the algorithm-based selective group. And one was the culture-based selective group. So we've randomized cows within each herd. In the next lactation, we followed them to 120 days in milk. We followed milk production, somatic cell count records, clinical mastitis events, um, culling events, death events, looked at all those potential outcomes that are of obvious economic importance to producers, and there was no difference among the three programs. And that's perfect. That's exactly what we wanted to see. Bradley, what, right. are, you, what are you doing up at, at your place? You've got I know obviously you're not you're not treating your organic herd, but on the conventional side, uh, at dry off, what what's going on there? Oh, where where do I start? <laughs> I change I change all the time. But so when I started at Morris, it was blanket dry cow therapy, and and we we did that, and then we have the organic herd, which we don't you know we can't use any sort of dry cow treatments whatsoever. So then at one point I'm like, well why am I even spending money or wasting time trying to treat dry cow therapy in our conventional herd when we don't do it in the organic herd and we don't see too many of an issue. So I stopped treating anything for a couple of years, no teat sealants, no nothing. And then after a while I decided, oh, well now it seems like uh, infections are going up after, you know, 30 to 60 days after they calve again. So maybe I need to- Funny how back. that happens. Exactly, exactly. So then I'm like, well, Maybe I need to go back and and uh, we started using blanket dry cow therapy again, as well as teat sealants to help that out. Seems to be working better now. I have thought about selective dry cow therapy and trying to figure that out and do we need to treat, but it all comes back to labor and time. And, you know, is it easier for, uh, we're not a large herd, you know, 300 cows, but is it easier for the employees just to go down the line and give all 10 cows or, or, look at those. So I still have an, in my mind to only treat cows that are, that, that have issues. So that's why I, you know, I was uh, on a Minnesota DHI webinar uh, the last couple of days where I heard, uh, you know, Sandra talk about their uh, DHI report where they talk about that, uh, which cows to treat. So that might be a good option for us. Cause it's always like, well, well, how do I decide is, is 300 the best or is 350 cell count? And uh, one other issue that, I shouldn't say an issue, but one other challenge that I think all dairies probably face with culturing is you have to remain clean, utmost cleanliness, because you can infect milk samples really fast, and then it can throw everything uh, crazy. And, and you see that sometime where it's like, well, I just, it's got every bug in the world, and is it really, does the cow really have that, or does she, is it infected from another cow or something like that? So... I have some thoughts. Yeah, so Brad was just referring to contaminated samples. That's absolutely true. If you don't collect a clean sample, you're, you know, garbage in, garbage out. 
you're not going to get good results and it's going to look like everything is infected and you're not going to reduce your antibiotic use at all and that's a that's a failing program um i do have some thoughts about that that's where the, the vet can come in and train people to collect samples and monitor the contamination rate or i think veterinarians don't make enough use of food animal large animal technicians and I think this would be a perfect niche for the local vet clinic to train their technicians to come out, do a you know, really consistent, clean job of collecting those samples, go back, plate the, plate the samples in, in the lab, in the clinics, maybe the farm doesn't have an lab. And then they could even come back on dry off day, two days later, and well-trained people we know can dry these cows off with no problem. So there's another possible approach for a herd that maybe doesn't have DHI data, maybe doesn't want to start DHI testing, that leaves the culture-based program for them. But if they don't have the time or they're not confident that they can correctly, as you say, collect samples, do the treatments, et cetera, maybe there's a role for the vet and vet te technicians to step into these niche and help people out. I think technicians are, are very underutilized in what they can do. Uh, we spend a lot of time training these people to do things very confidently. Yeah, they can be put in spots where they're doing these things uh, by themselves without, you know, without direct veterinary supervision uh, to do that. And they're, they're very talented people that can handle it just fine. And as Brad will probably point out, they, they're not, the, they don't cost as much as having the veterinarian on your farm. We get expensive. It's hard to, it's hard to deny that. Um, but that, that's a great option. That could be, um, you know, I feel a new side business brewing here. Right? <laughs> we can hire out. But techs go do that. So I was going to ask, Sandra, economics are probably the number one influencer to, to switch to selective dry cow therapy, as they should be. I mean, I know it all comes down to the bottom line and, and looking at the costs and that kind of thing. But I also wonder, and you know, we may have to edit this out, I know it's a hot button issue for some people, and that is on antibiotic resistance. Mm -hmm. And, you know, by using less antibiotics, you're hopefully avoiding building up a lot of resistance to that in herds. And I was just wondering if you, you know, looked into any of that or just have any thoughts on that? No, that's, the, the, there are three main reasons why the dairy industry should be looking at selective dry cow therapy in individual producers. The first is a legitimate concern about antibiotic use and antibiotic stewardship in, in food animal systems. We, we know as a general rule, and this is true of animals, cats, dogs, cows, people, it doesn't matter the animal, the more we use antibiotics, the, the more selection pressure we put on, the more likely we are to create resistance. So if we can identify opportunities to reduce that risk, whether it be mastitis or calf pneumonia or whatever, we should, we should try to find, you know, create practical systems or approaches to doing that. Um, so, so reducing the potential for, for creating future increased resistance to antibiotics, that's the first reason to do this. We haven't seen a big shift or change in antibiotic resistance patterns in mastitis pathogens over the last 20 years. It's, they've been pretty constant, but that doesn't mean to say that tomorrow, you know, some plasmid might not jump into some new bug and we create something new. So if we can reduce antibiotic use, that's a smart thing to do. The second reason to think about this is just the consumer perception of, of antibiotic use in, in, again, food animal systems. And if we can show them that we're making a good faith effort to identify and reduce antibiotic use where it works, 
then we should be doing that. And, and selective dry cow therapy is a perfect example of that. And then the third reason, which you've already mentioned, is economics. It is actually economically advantageous for producers to do this. So with our data set, we, we crunched the numbers. We compared the economics of blanket dry cow therapy against both the algorithm-based approach, which was using this, the DHI cell count data, or the culture-based approach, which obviously required extra labor to collect milk samples, culture the samples, et cetera. Well, with both the selected programs, they were both, they both had a positive net return. They saved money as compared to the blanket. Now this varied from herd to herd, but on average, the algorithm-based program saved the producer $7.85 per cow. That's big, that's really, really big. And, and the reason that was is because they can, we considered the cell count data a sunk cost. The herd was already paying for that for the other reasons they used DHI cell count data um, during lactation. So it was essentially free to us to make these dry cow or dry off decisions. It was essentially free. You just have to look at a list, say treat, no treat, and, and go. And so that was big, $7.85 a cow. The culture-based algorithm approach was also positive, but it was smaller. It was a $2.14 uh, savings per cow. So much smaller because obviously we have to invest a little bit of money into the labor to collect samples, buy the culture plates, you know, read the plates, et cetera. So it was a smaller positive return, but it was a still a positive net return. My favorite economics professor, John Fetro, he was constantly pointing out that despite everything, you wanting everything to be an economic decision, not everything is an economic decision. So the fact that, that we are saving money and there's other reasons to do this that have nothing to do with economics, uh, to me, it makes a lot of sense. And again, it's very conditional on well-trained employees and being able to do everything correctly. What, what I hear the most when people are against the use of, of selective dry cow therapy is this is going to cause a problem for my dairy, somatic cell count's going to go up, do all these things uh, because I'm not, I'm, I'm not managing that the way I used to and I have a potential for that. And I, I can't argue with that if you do this wrong, because if you, if you, are, if you have poor infusion technique uh, and aseptic technique when you're drying off cows, I agree, you are going to have a problem with this. But if you do this all right, it, it's beneficial pretty much across the board. Yeah, we talk about that with almost everything I feel like. Of, it all comes down to management. And if you are a poor manager, these newfangled things, ideas, technology, whatever, they're not gonna work. Um, you cannot, you cannot overcorrect poor management with more stuff. Um, so yeah, I think that that's a really great point, Joe. And yeah, seven eighty-five a cow—that's huge. But even two fourteen. I mean, if you milk a thousand cows, two thousand cows, you know that that adds up relatively quickly. I think. Yeah. Can I can I share some kind of cool numbers with you? Emma? Yes. Um. So back. So so seven eighty-five a cow. Well, the next question is, well, how many cows is that in my herd? So back in April and May, when we were first bringing our results to Minnesota DHI, they asked that question, well, how, how many herds would it really impact in Minnesota? How many cows would it impact in Minnesota? So they ran the numbers based on the cell count data, and they, they calculated that in April and May of this year, 2020, 59% of herds would be eligible, according to their annual average cell count data. And within those herds, 79% of cows would be eligible not to treat in, in April or May. So that came out to 10,043 cows 
in April and May alone would not have received antibiotic. Now, the, the caveat to that is the farmer still needs to go and look at the clinical mastitis sheet and make sure that there aren't some cows there that maybe had a low cell count but had some clinicals. So it might be slightly less there, you know, smaller number, but over 10,000 cows in Minnesota in April and May alone would not have needed to be treated. That's a lot of money. That is wow. a lot of cows and a lot of money on the table. <laughs> oh, and even yeah. if you, what if you say 10% couldn't be treated, that's still 9,000 cows. That's, that's a lot of cows that it would have affected. That's, that's a lot higher than I expected. Uh, yeah. And that's a lot more herds that were eligible than I expected, which kind of talks to your, your first point that there's, we're doing a really good job and farmers are doing a very good job with the somatic cell count. So those are cool yeah. numbers. Yeah, I think, I can't remember the exact number right lately, but um, the average somatic cell count in the average Minnesota herd is under 200,000 now. We're doing really good, really well. I'm going to attribute it to all of Emily's extension articles about mastitis. I'm uh, sure that that's it. You that's are welcome, absolutely. dairy farmers of Minnesota. <laughs> so, but I do really want a quick comment on, you know, you made a good point, Sandra, about how and Joe said it too, like the economics aren't everything. You know, I think that they are a really big driving force in a lot of the decisions that get made today on farms. But I also do like, you know, and we've talked about it before on the podcast, kind of this idea of, of social responsibility. And, you know, to me, I just think that that's really important and thinking about, you know, what, what antibiotic resistance could mean for the future of the industry. And so thinking about it now, trying to kind of get ahead of it almost if you can, uh, I think is, is both, you know, responsible and, and fiscally, economically makes sense for these farms. So I, yes, I am sold. I'm a believer. Yeah. I mean, if you could go out and tell, you know, the consumers at your field day next summer, hey, in the last year, I've reduced antibiotic use in my herd by, you know, 35% or something. Wow. You know, that, lo that looks really good for the industry. Yeah, exactly. That has a really big impact. Or just go organic and you don't use antibiotics. So yeah, right. I said organic and put a sensor in it. <laughs> I just had I, to throw that in there. <laughs> I, it, organic is not the solution for everyone. Right. Just to be to be clear, there's a place for everybody in the industry. Right? Uh, oh, I agree. And I don't deny we should reduce antibiotic use. And if this is one way that we can do that, that's then we should all do this. Yeah, it's it's a big thing. It's a big deal. I think we've covered almost everything. The one thing I wanted to let you get everybody know out there is that there is a cost calculator that goes along with selective dry cow therapy that the University of Minnesota created. Uh, it is on the Dairy No website, which is the College of Veterinary Medicine's ruminant group dairy website. That is dairyno.umn.edu. That's D-A-I-R-Y-K-N-O-W.umn.edu. So check that out. That's a That's a great tool. You can put in all your different parameters for, for how much is this going to save you if you do this. Thank you again, Sandra, for being here. We really appreciate uh, your time today and, and talking about this today. My pleasure. Thank you. If you have comments, questions for us, scathing rebuttals or scathing rebuttals that we can forward on to Sandra, send them to the moose room at umn.edu. That's T-H-E-M-O-O-S-R-O-O-M at umn.edu. Check out our website. There is an article to match this, extension.umn.edu. Search for Selective Dry Cow Therapy. You'll find that article. Check us out on Facebook, at UMN Beef and at UMN Dairy. And check out Emily's YouTube channel. Plug it for me quick. U of M Extension Farm Safety and Health.
Perfect. I always get the name wrong for whatever reason, so I always have to have M do it. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We will catch you guys next week. Bye. Bye. Joe, how did it feel being the second smartest person?